Well, gang, good morning. Glad you're here. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. Head over on your phone, whatever it is you have the Word of God on, and uh, head over to Luke chapter 6. We're going to be beginning in verse 27 today. And uh, to understand it, we're in the middle of a sermon that Jesus is preaching. Uh, we've broken into multiple sermons as we uh, expound his preaching. Uh, but we're right in the middle of his preaching. And last week, what we saw him preaching on was these four blessings, the blesseds, right? Um, and these four woes. And the last of those woes uh, was, was how his disciples should expect that they are going to be persecuted. That is a reality. To be hated, to be reviled, to be spurred, to be excluded. Uh, and all of this just because of our, our love and our allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and the reason for that is because union with Christ means there is a, a separation from the world in some regard. Uh, and, and that separation means we're going to have enemies, right? If you're going to live under the reign of Christ, you're going to make enemies. That's just the reality. And so Jesus is here going to then be preparing his disciples, his disciples of every era, right? The disciples he was speaking to at the moment, and every disciple sends through the word of God, uh, written down in, in, in scripture, how it is we should respond when people hate us, right? That, that's what we're trying to see here. <clears throat> so I'll ask right off the bat, do you have any enemies because of your faith? Because that's the immediate context. I'm going to try to give you a, a few of these. might feel a little weird at first. From, from a wide angle, we might consider uh, the media as an enemy. We, we might consider them a, an enemy to uh, our faith, to, to biblical ethics. We, we might feel the same way about some giant corporations and their values, some politicians, some areas of the academic world. There, there's all kinds of things on that wide angle that we might consider enemies. Well, we can also include the, the, those of false religions in some regards, such as uh, Muslims, Mormons, hu uh, secular humanists, and atheists. I told you it was going to get a little weird, right? We might also include some groups that have corrupted the gospel into uh, unbiblical ways, and in those you might include Roman Catholicism or health and wealth preachers or uh, theologically liberal denominations and so on. Now, I, I believe it's helpful for us to be very broad as we think about this, as we consider who our enemies are, and the reason is because we want to be just as broad when we consider how Jesus calls us to respond to people in that category that we're about to read here. So, so let me broaden it a little more before we read it. Because the reality is, is most of us don't have enemies simply because of our faith. You don't walk through your life and, and get persecuted the way that these early disciples were going to be. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, and so we don't have that, that idea that fits the immediate context of this passage. And yet, if we're honest, we have all sorts of enemies in our lives. Uh, enemies that have become so for reasons related more to our own sinful hearts than, than it is to our love of Jesus. We have enemies who are enemies because they've trash, or talked trash about us. To other people. Uh, or, or because they find fault in, in everything we do. In, in, in who we are. In how we live. Or, or how you lead. Or, or just because your personality grates them completely. Or, or their personality does so to you. We, we have enemies in offices. In classrooms. In, in training and fields beside us. We have enemies among the, uh, the other parents in our children's activities. Maybe it's that, that neighbor who is 
who angers you because they play their music way too loud at crazy times. Or maybe you're the one playing the music too loud. And there's some crazy angry neighbor next door that expects you to be too quiet. Your, your enemy may be the demeaning boss or a brother and sister in this covenant community, a former friend uh, who maybe you had a disagreement with. And, and you know that person that you, you go home and you're always complaining about? Chances are you're on their list of enemies as well. See, church, unfortunately, we are gifted at making enemies. And Jesus has something incredibly radical to teach us today. And so this is the moment today, right? You can get into your mind the biggest enemy of your life or the the most recent or that lingering one that continues to to be considered an enemy in your life. And and, and keep them in mind as we read this, right? As, As Jesus is teaching us, this is how true disciples should respond to people who hate them, to their enemies. I know it's a long introduction, but let's begin reading in Luke chapter 6, verse 27. We'll read all the way to the the end of verse 36. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to, to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. The grass withers and the flower fades. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word, and, it, and that means that we need it even more than, than we need food in our life. Help us this morning to, to chew on this, this meaty bit of your, your word. Help us to chew on it and, and nourish us by it. When we find our our hearts laid before you this morning so that you might change us in the very areas of our life where we go to great effort to hide our weaknesses. May we find the goodness of your mercy to us so wonderful that these words of yours no longer sound so strange to our ears. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've kind of listed off some enemies, but I... I want to know, can we, can we start with just a little bit of, of confession this morning? That loving people is hard. Even, even people we like, to, to truly love them is hard. Right? It, it's hard to love friends sometimes. It's, it's hard to love parents. It's hard to love our siblings. Our, our favorite co-workers are hard to love. You know, it is hard to love our brothers and sisters in Christ in the way that Jesus is here calling us to love our enemies. 
just hard. And yet the reality is that Jesus is calling us to to treat people who who hate us, people who we are prone to hate back, to treat them better than most of us treat our best friends. I mean, the reality here is is this. Is is there anything more counterintuitive in your life than to love your enemy? And yet Jesus says here, "But, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Now, you likely know that in Greek, there's a lot of words that we translate into English from the Greek. We just, you know, American, English, we're just love. Everything becomes love. Uh, in the Greek, there's a lot of them. There, there's one, uh, storge, which is just this natural affection, you know, the way you might just meet someone and like, yeah, they're really cool, I like them. Uh, natural affection. There's eros, which uh, is romantic, uh, a passionate attraction. Uh, there's uh, philia, philia uh, which, which is brotherly love, right? Like the city of Philadelphia, which ironically is not known for their love so much. Um, but when Jesus says it here, says here, love your enemies, he's using the well-known word. If you've ever known a Greek word, this is it, that, that word agape, which is this deep love that, that's given even to those who are unworthy, undeserving of that love. It's a love which proceeds from the lover to the one who is, is loved by, by a choice. And this is significant because disciples of Jesus do not wander, do not fall into this sort of love that he's calling us to. It's not the natural one. It's not our natural response. It's, it's rather an act of obedience to, to Jesus if we love like this. In, in the words that, that follow, verses 27 and 28, you can see there, do you, do you see this progression then that comes out of that idea of love, right? Of what enemy, loving an enemy looks like. It says, uh, do good to those who hate you. This is love with our actions, actions. And, and then we see, bless those who curse you. This is love with our speech. Right in our, our modern vernacular, it's, it's saying something like this. Speak well of those who speak trash about you. That, that's what the command's getting at. And that's not easy to do. Uh, Jesus adds to that, pray for those who abuse you. This is love with our hearts. It's the hardest part of it, right? It's, it's desiring. It's, it's asking God to rescue someone from their sin. And that someone being the very people who have acted evil against you. The disciple Stephen gives, an example, gives us an example of this. In, in Acts, you, you might remember, Stephen is a, uh, a new follower of Christ. And uh, the Jews come at him full of hatred. And they decide they're going to murder him with stones by just throwing them at them, at him. And, and as he's being killed by these stones, <clears throat> in Acts 7, 60, verse 60, uh, we read this. It says, And falling on his knees, Stephen cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. The sin is killing him, and here he is praying for them. Now, there is some significant here, significance here that, that Jesus says to pray for those who abuse you, right? Because he's not asking us to remain and to endure abuse when we can escape it. But we can pray for someone who is an abuser from a safe distance away from them. So, so because some Christians have wrongly applied this passage to, to enduring domestic abuse. I, I want to be particularly clear here that this, this is not calling women to remain in an abusive relationship. 
It is not calling children to remain silent in abusive homes or situations. It, you know, it's not asking you to simply endure the bully forever. Part of, of, of actually loving someone the way that Jesus here is calling us to love our enemies. Uh, and so part of loving someone who's abusive is to bring their sin to the light so that God might convict them of that sin and bring them to a place of true repentance. Also, we are called to preserve life, even our very own life. If we can escape an abusive situation, we absolutely should. But, but listen, even then, even then, we are to pray for those who have caused us great pain. And that is not easy. Maybe the hardest of all prayers to pray. But we can pray it from a safe distance. Now I've belabored this because I want to be, I want to be clear if, if you are the victim of a physically abusive person that we as a church will never ask you to endure that. But we absolutely want to get involved in your life. We absolutely are willing to assist you and find, find, find help in every way we possibly can. Just to make that absolutely clear. And so then Jesus is going to get into some examples here. And as we read this, we so quickly want to apply it to our current context that I want you to make sure that you remember the context he's putting this into. And it's this moment of these disciples are about to face violent persecution. Situations they can't get out of. Situations of great hatred simply because of their faith. These disciples of Jesus are going to suffer because of Jesus. And so they need to know how to respond, rather how not to retaliate in these moments. And so he gives this example. He says, yeah, if you're slapped across the cheek, offer the other cheek as well. And, and that seems odd, but, but what's the natural response, right? If someone comes up to you and just punches you in the face, what's your natural response? You want to retaliate. Bigger, worse, right? Hit them harder. This is where it's weird. That's not the way of Jesus. 1 Peter 2.23, we, we learn how Jesus handled persecution himself. And listen, Jesus might not have been a big muscular guy. We have no indication that he was. But we know the power of Christ. He could have retaliated in a way that no one else in history could have retaliated. And it says this, when, when Jesus was reviled, right, hated, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, to God. That's how Jesus wants his disciples to respond when people hate us. And so then Jesus says, if someone takes your cloak from you, let them also take your tunic. These aren't words we use, but a cloak was an outer-like garment. It's a coat in our current, uh, our current culture. And a tunic was an inner garment, something more like your, your shirt and your pants, right? Something you wore underneath that. And Jesus' point here is that if someone wants your coat so badly that they would harm you in order to take that from you, just go ahead and give them the rest. This stuff's not that important. It's obviously important to them. Third example here says to, to, to give to everyone who begs from you. Now, uh, applying this actually takes a great deal of wisdom that must be fueled by the love that we're learning about here. Because what, what would happen if we just, uh, without wisdom involved, if we just thoughtlessly just gave to everyone who ever asked you? Think of the telemarketers that have called you. Think of every person on every corner asking you for stuff. Every, everyone who's ever asked you for anything in your life. 
Yeah, we'd be broke real quick. You know who'd be the beggar in that if you really were to just blindlessly do that, right? Uh, It'd be you. You'd be needing to beg from others. It, It would make us unable to keep a great deal of other commitments the Lord has called us to. Providing for families. Uh, as one example. Um, last year, I'll give you a quick example. This Last year, I was talking to a college student who was frustrated with one of his roommates because uh, the roommate had met a guy on the street who had asked him for money, and, and he just gave him the money that he was about to pay his rent with. And, and he goes home, and the other guys are trying to gather up the money because they owe this money to someone, and he couldn't pay his part. And he said, I just figured y'all would cover me since I was doing something good. Well, you can imagine the rest of the roommates didn't appreciate that. Um, he, he put them in a, a rough position by essentially uh, presuming on them to do something that they, they hadn't agreed to themselves. It, was, um, it, it wasn't a good thing. And I, and I give that as just a, a general example. Uh, on, on one level, I absolutely commend this guy's compassion, but, but it was unlikely or it was unwise. Um, on the other hand, and this is important on the other hand, I, I think we probably can reason with the roommates in this a lot easier uh, than we can anyone else. But uh, on the other hand, sometimes we as Christians, we're so worried about being taken advantage of that we never give anything to anyone. If I give him money, he's going to go buy beer and get drunk, right? We're so worried of getting taken advantage of. They're not working hard enough, and I, I am working harder, so maybe they should work harder. There's that self-righteousness that wants to justify these kind of things. Um, and, and, and we get so, so worried about that that we never give to anyone. Listen, be wise, but for the sake of the gospel, let's err on the side of generosity. That's the point. See, the heart of this is that love must determine what we do in these situations. Not love for ourselves, not love for our money, but love for others, even our enemies. May love for stuff never, ever keep us from, from giving to others. The, the last example is if someone steals from you, don't go after them. It's a, it's a little like we see in Hebrews 10.34 where, where the author, uh, whoever you think the author of Hebrews is, um, where, where he esteems them and he says these, he says, You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession, possession an abiding one. In, in other words... Someone came and destroyed all their stuff, all because they're a Christian. And they didn't retaliate against their enemies in this moment. And, and they didn't do so because they knew that this world and this stuff, this is not the important thing. I still have what's important. I still have the Lord. So the idea here is then that, that we love people, even our enemies, more than we love our stuff. And again, like every other aspect we've seen, that's hard to do. Uh, verse 31 is what's commonly called the golden rule. I don't, I don't know about you, but sometimes the most surprising thing about the golden rule to me, if you're familiar with it, is that it's not given in the context of friends and family. It's given in the context of how do you love your enemies, right? Because we're always usually applying it to like people we should naturally love. And he's applying it here to some of the hardest to love. Uh, This rule, though, this is a summary of what Jesus has been teaching, but, but it's not original to Jesus. It's not. Many Greek philosophers had been teaching this, only doing it from the negative perspective of the formulation. And in this sense, uh, do not do to others what you wish they would not do to you. Um, if you don't think you'd want to be kicked in the head today, 
don't kick someone in the head. And so what, what's unique then is that Jesus here is, is, is that he's making it a positive obligation, a requirement to proactively do good. And that was absolutely radical. He says, and as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Now that, that's quite different from our, our usual whatever it takes to get my way in this situation mentality. So we need to be careful then that we don't just assume this is for, your, for children learning to share their toys, right? This, this is for adults as much as it is for children. It's an incredibly directive way to live our lives as Jesus' disciples uh, to love others in the way that he's trying to get us to work towards. It helps us to, to move to action whenever we see need, right? You, you walk into your house and you see... Uh, the clean laundry is becoming a, a mountain range of its very own, right? It might move you to fold those and put them away. Or maybe you got a, a, a co-worker and you notice they didn't bring any food today. They're starving. And you can see them falling apart. You're about to take your break. You know, maybe you bring them back some food, not based on how much you like that person, but because you see their need in that moment. It might be something like just being patient when, when the person in the drop-off lane at school gets out of their car and walks their child to the door. Don't do that, by the way. Right? Or just giving someone grace when they fail to be what it is you think they should be. This is, this is the way of Christ's disciples because it can only be obeyed in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit who dwells in each and every follower of Christ, Christian. Verses 22 and 34 lay out these three situations. Uh, love is offered. Uh, where, where love is offered. It says uh, to do good, right? Uh, and, and, to, and money is lended. Those are the three, three situations. All right, sorry, love is offered, good is done, and, and money is lended. And, and, but only in each of these things, right? The, the assumption is that there's going to be something in return, and that's the motivation for doing it, right? That somehow our good will be reciprocated back to us. And, and Jesus asked them that question, what, what benefit, literally what grace, what, what benefit is that to you? And the assumption is nothing. There's no benefit to you. Which makes a whole other assumption, doesn't it? That, that if you do it with, without desiring anything in return, if we love those who hate us, there is some benefit. Um, right? If we lend money, if we do good, if we... If we love those who can give nothing back, there, there's some benefit. And Jesus is showing us that the, that the true heart of love is a focus entirely on the other. And Jesus, of course, here confirms the, the benefit to us. In verse 35, he says, uh, But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. Now, there's not a great definition of, of what the reward is, but you know that if it comes from the Lord Jesus, it is something wonderful. Right? But we can trust it is, right? Uh, so we're told then in, in verse 35 a little bit of what it is. He, he says we'll be sons of the Most High. Let me ask you, does that sound as though loving your enemies is the condition by which you become sons of God? I think it might sound that way. That's not, that's not what's going on here. That's not the case. Rather, when we, when we love our enemies, we're living like the children of God that we truly are because we've been rescued in the gospel. Loving our enemies, then, is a characteristic that reflects that we truly are children of, of God. 
I mean, I, my, my own children, I was trying to think of this, but my own children, they all have uh, the same color eyes of Laura and I. It's a, a bluish color. It's a, a characteristic of, of being our child, but, but, but having blue eyes, that's not what makes them our children. They didn't show up and go, look, blue eyes, a child. But it's a characteristic. In, in other words, we, we, we can love our enemies. Um, that we can love our enemies is a reassuring evidence that we are indeed sons of the Most High, you know, that we are children of God. And, and here's why. Because only His heart-transforming grace can make His children willing to practice such counterintuitive, self-sacrificial love for enemies. It's the only way. And so then in these last statements, we, we learn what the fuel for loving our enemies is. We're, we're, we're told that God is, is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Every day in, in the world where the wrath of God should just be poured out, we see God pouring out blessings of life and provision and joys and, and so much more on, on people who do not honor him and, and do not offer even a single ounce of gratitude in return for it. And, and because God is merciful, even to those who are evil and hate him, Jesus is teaching us to also love this way. I mean, I mean, think about the way that we saw Jesus love his enemies, right? It's further along in Luke that we'll start to see some of this. But, but when people spoke evil of him during his trial... He remains silent. He doesn't defend himself in that regard. After the soldiers beat him and nail him with the cross, after they mock him with a crown of thorns just jabbed down into his, his head, after they steal his clothing from him and distribute it among themselves, his response to these enemies is always love. He prays in Luke twenty three thirty four, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And remember, God, God has had other enemies as well. Christian, but before you were adopted into the family of God through the blood of Christ, don't forget that you yourself, uh, me, myself, we were enemies of God. Romans 5.10 is so incredibly clear on that point that, that that's who we are. And, and you understand then that, that we are the sinners who, who give to God expecting something in return. We are the sinners who, who love only those who love us back. We are the enemies of God whom, whom God has mercifully and graciously loved, taking the wrath and giving uh, his life upon the Roman cross. As Philip Ryken puts it, he says, Salvation comes from the enemy-loving heart of God who reconciles sinners, yes, sinners to himself. And Jesus didn't do it to receive anything back from you. It was a sovereign choice of our Lord to, to love you who are undeserving of his love. And when we love our enemies, we, we become a living display of the love of God in the, in the gospel that we've received. And so, listen, you, you, you can't keep this command of Jesus in your own strength. You, you can't. But, but in His strength, in the strength of the Spirit who dwells in you, you, you can learn to love your enemies. That's why He commands this. And so maybe you're wondering, where in the world do, do I begin with something like this? How about this? For, for, first of all, expect a slow, gradual change that will be difficult as, as the Holy Spirit makes you able. 
You, you can't just expect that, you know, you're going to walk out of here. I heard a sermon. I'm motivated. I'm going to love my enemy, and it's just going to be perfect from this moment on. See, sanctification is a lot like losing weight. If you need to lose 30 pounds, you just can't expect that to do, it, do that in a week. You just can't. But you can lose two pounds in a week. You, you, you can slowly move towards the weight you're aiming at. We are declared righteous in a moment by the blood of Christ, but we are changed slowly over time to be more like Christ. And so make a smaller goal to begin with maybe one enemy that comes to mind. Secondly, remember that the question here isn't how can I make my enemy love me? Sometimes we confuse that, right? If I do this, then they'll love me. That, that's self-serving ultimately. The question though is, how can I love my enemy? God's not asking you to change their heart. He, he's asking you to, to love them. And maybe he'll change their heart. Maybe he won't. And you'll have to continue to love an enemy. Uh, to do that though, you, you've got to care less about what other people think of you. And care more about other people. Even the worst ones. Even the ones that hate you, uh, the ones that want to see you fail, the ones that mock you, the ones that, that offer you no encouragement, the ones who your own heart is so prone to despise. Third, keep in mind that love is not merely something we feel. It's something we actively do while trusting in God. There, um, tell you a story. There's a, a missionary that was on furlough. They, they come back from the mission field <clears throat> because they just need a break. They need some time to rest and relaxation. And, and shortly after her break began, the worst neighbors ever moved in next door. Uh, obnoxious. Uh, she knew they were unbelievers but uh, a number of ways, some conversations. They, they played, played loud music at times you, you couldn't possibly uh, make sense out of. They were constantly just cussing and cussing and cussing. The, the, the husband and a couple of the young children would pee in the front yard in broad daylight. Uh, we're talking not the ideal neighbors. And she prayed and she asked the Lord, you know, can you, just, can you help me be more loving to them? And what she found was she started to become more frustrated, more, more bitter, until uh, one day she came home and, and she found that, that the children had sprayed orange paint all over her, her patio. The porch she'd set up where she planned to read and rest and pray and relax, right? Uh, it was on the walls and the floors and the chairs. It was everywhere. And after fuming for a while, she was praying in frustration to the Lord. And she finally just broke free in, in her frustration. She said, I, I can't love them, God. I can't love them because I hate them. And soon after, the Lord providentially led her to read Colossians 3.14, which says this. It says, And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. She's wondering herself, how in the world do I put on love when I only have hate for them in my closet? She, she, she pictured the, the love of God for her in this situation, right? She, she pictured putting it on like a, a coat, and she found great comfort in that. And as she considered, well, how do I put this on? She began to make this list, right? And, and the list was this, what would I do for these neighbors if I did love them? Full confession, I don't love them, but what would I do if I did love them? And then she chose to love them, agape. She began to do the things on the list. She, she baked cookies for them. 
expecting nothing in return. She, she offered a, to babysit for free. She invited the mother over for coffee and conversation. And, and by these acts of, 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 of obedient love, by, by doing these good, this good for them and expecting nothing in return, she began to understand them. She began to understand the pressures they were under and, and the background they came from and their struggles in life. And, and soon her heart followed after the, these actions, these choosing to love. And she actually truly loved these unworthy neighbors. So it, it might help you then to, to think about whoever your most relevant enemy is right now. And, and just like this, this missionary, make, make a list a few things that, that, that you would do if you did love them and then begin to do that. All the while being sure that you have no expectations for what they, how they should respond to this kindness of yours. In other words, travel the one-way street of love. Don't expect it to come back. Now, now I want to end with just a few questions to consider to, to help us see how we're loving our enemy and, and to pray uh, and then pray and think of better ways that we might love our enemy. Uh, and so again, make it personal. Think of this person in your mind as I read these because I want you to fill in this blank at the end of each statement with their name. And, and the first one's this. What, what good have I done to... And fill in their name. What good have I done Number two, what, what words of blessing have I spoken to or about such and such? Three, have I fought the temptation to be critical and judgmental towards your enemy? And also, in what ways might you begin to encourage them? Number four, consider, have I been humble and approachable when my enemy and I have had times of misunderstanding or disagreements? Or have I attacked their character and their intelligence and various other things about them? Finally, have I prayed for God to work in the life of... Go ahead, think of that name, the person that comes to mind. And maybe we just start with that last one. Begin, begin praying for them. Begin praying for the, the person who you find to be an enemy in your life. Let's close in prayer. Merciful Heavenly Father, change our hearts, change our outlooks from merely self-centeredness to, to others. Change our anger and hatred, our, our bitterness towards enemies. Change it in, in, into love like only you can do. Change our, our longing for retaliation into mercy that truly longs for, for you to redeem our worst enemies. And God, we thank you that Jesus, our Savior, walked through life and, and lived the golden rule with perfection like we will not accomplish. And yet, because you loved us when we were enemies, we are today children of your grace. Thank you for, for loving us with agape love. Thank you for not loving us simply the way we love others, but in this glorious, selfless way that redeems us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.